Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Saul's mission to the Gentile world has become. He's been blessed. The proconsul of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, has believed in the Lord Jesus and has been converted. That's a good start. You might say that Paul was in exactly the right place at the right time. It was, wasn't a coincidence. Paul was in Cyprus. It wasn't a coincidence that the seas were calm enough to travel just when there was a ruler there who was clever enough to think for himself and to think things through. Was it a coincidence that the first person to be saved on his international missions trip was a man of great importance, a man of great influence, the highest official on an island, a man who, because he was in that very favoured position, would have been someone who had found favour in the imperial government. He'd been given a choice appointment. That very first convert was the man who would help the mission. He was a man of influence. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe in chance or fortune. Certainly don't believe in good luck, do you? You see, God always ordains everything in his time. And what I want to just show you very simply this evening is that when Paul set out on his first missionary journey, it wasn't an accident. It was just at exactly the right time. It was at the time that had been exactly laid out by the Lord for this mission to the Gentiles to begin. Um, In Psalm 31 and verse 14 and 15, uh, the psalmist says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in thy hand. Do you know Ecclesiastes chapter 3? Everything. There is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Verse 11 of that same chapter, the Lord tells us that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Um, In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 to 7, when you read that passage, you will see that the thrust of that passage lies in the verse that says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. God's Timing is always perfect. When Jesus came into this world at Bethlehem, it was the right time. When he died on the cross, it was God's perfect timing. When Paul set foot on the boat to go to Cyprus, it was God's time for the gospel to be spread throughout the world. It was the exact time for that to happen. I want you to see how it was the exact time. We want to do a little bit of history. The first one, first thing that we notice in the chapter here, is the relative ease of travel. When Paul set out, he travelled from, some of his travel plans are laid out for us in the chapter. And this missionary journey is all about travel. Um, 
They had traveled from verse chapter 12 and verse 25. They had traveled up to Antioch from Jerusalem. They had traveled. And then they had traveled um, down at verse 4 of chapter 13, being sent by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So they got from from, from Syria across to Cyprus, and there they stayed at Salamis, which was the northern port. They preached the word of God. They traveled, verse 6, through the island down to Paphos, where they found the governor and were opposed by the the sorcerer, and later on they would travel again over to Asia Minor, to what we now call Turkey. Acts 13 and verse 51. They shook off their feet, the dust from their feet and came to Iconium. They'd been to Perga. They'd going to Iconium. The whole chapter surrounds the ability to travel by land and by sea. Paul, someone estimated, must have travelled on his missionary journeys between 10,000 and 13,500 miles. And he didn't have a car, and he didn't have um, a jet plane, like some evangelists nowadays, so-called. He just travelled by foot. He went on ships, he travelled by foot, he walked the roads, he... Travelled by sea, the Mediterranean was busy with merchant vessels, travelling from port to port. Passage was easy to obtain, could be worked. Overland travel became safer and easier. Extensive travel would have been impossible before this time, and even a little bit afterwards. There were two factors that um, enabled safe travel on the roads. These roads were Roman roads. They had been built by the Roman Empire. The Ro- Romans built roads right across the empire. If you go to England, you can still see some of them. They even had A roads and B roads, just like we have motorways and secondary roads. The Romans had 50,000 miles of primary roads and 200,000 miles of secondary roads. The Romans had a state post office, a postal service. And the roads were primarily for the purpose of safely moving the mail from one city to the next. The Romans invented concrete. Major roads were solidly constructed. They had a bed of gravel. They had a concrete top. The lesser used roads were well-maintained gravel surfaces. And because of the roads, the movement of people became very, very much easier than previously had been the case, just at the right time. But it wasn't only the Roman roads that enabled travel. It was also the fact that Rome was a police state. The Lex Romana. Rome was a police state. The punishments were strict and harsh, and the roads were policed by the Roman army. And, of course, in some places... The punishments were so severe, they were crucifixions were commonplace, they were horrific. Bodies of executed criminals would often be found displayed on Roman gibbets along the road, and after the slave rebellion under the legendary insurgent Spartacus, which you'd have heard of, 
They tell me that over a thousand crucified slaves were left to rot along the roads as a warning to others to stay within the law. And with such a stern deterrent, the Roman Empire was reasonably safe for Paul and Barnabas to travel about just at exactly the right time. And of course there was the availability of a universal language. There's another wee verse tucked away in this chapter and we look at it a little bit later on. But in chapter 13 and verse 9 it tells us that Saul was also called Paul. Um, Now the Greek language was the language of trade and commerce in those days. We've got to come back to that because Paul is not a Greek word. But everyone who wanted to carry out international business spoke Greek. And nowadays, as we know, the English language is spoken throughout the entire world. Sometimes it's a wee bit despised because of that. Um, Especially if you're in France. I've only been in France once. And I remember my wife. I had had some smattering of schoolboy French. Um, but the problem with the people who live in France is that they don't speak their own language very well. So they couldn't understand my French. My wife decided she wasn't even going to try. She thought, she thinks everybody speaks English, there's no point. So she went in, we were staying in a little town in Brittany, and there was a little grocery type shop. And she went into the t- shop and she asked the man for butter. And the man looked at her blankly. And her uh, answer to that was basically to shout at him as loud as she could, Butter! Butter! And eventually, by pointing and gesticulating, the poor Frenchman eventually understood what she wanted and handed it to her. We seem to think everybody speaks English because it is, of course, the, the international language of trade. And Greek was the international language of trade in Paul's day. And the New Testament was written in Greek. It was the the medium which the message of the gospel was carried on. Paul wrote in Greek and spoke in Greek, and the message of the gospel spread rapidly throughout the Greek-speaking world. It was the right time for God to send forth his missionaries across the world. But thirdly, and lastly, there was one other reason why this was exactly the right time. And it was because the Jewish diaspora opened the doors for preaching. Look back at the passage for a moment or two here. And you'll see that whenever Paul arrived in Salamis, the northern port of the town of Cyprus. The first thing that he did was he preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Verse 5. When they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That's what they always did. They always preached firstly in the synagogues. That's how that new missionary team found an opportunity to be heard. 
That was never a problem for Paul. There were Jews everywhere. They were considered by Rome to be a religio licita, a legal religion. And wherever the Jews went, they organized themselves into little communities based around a synagogue. So when Paul and Barnabas arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue. Verse 4. Um, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the fourteen rather, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now look what happens next in chapter thirteen and verse fourteen. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his right hand, said, and he begins to preach a sermon, which we're going to look at next time, very important sermon. So these groups were always the first port of call. And what we have there in that little passage is an example of a synagogue service. Let's think about that for a minute. Think about the structures of the synagogue. You see, the synagogue was not, strictly speaking, a building, even though there would have been a building called the synagogue. The synagogue is a bit like our understanding of the church. Um, we know that churches, we call our buildings churches. Um, but the church isn't the building. The building is just the meeting house, isn't it? That's really all it is. The church is the community of people who meet inside the meeting house. We are the church. The synagogue was a Jewish community. It had its own elders, its own leaders. These men would have been responsible for the services in the synagogue, but they'd have been responsible for much more. They carried a measure of authority in their own community. They acted as a local council of elders, a Sanhedrin, a miniature version of the Sanhedrin at Jerusalem. They exercised discipline, over the attached community. And they could administer punishments, and did, very often corporal punishment. Paul himself suffered at their hands. If you turn over in your Bible for a wee reading, just for a moment, to Second Corinthians, you'll see an example of that. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. And this is Paul's description of how he had been badly treated. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more often, in deaths oft. Verse 24. Of the Jews... Five times received I forty stripes, saved once. Saved one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and the day have I been in the deep, journeying often in perils of waters and perils of robbers, 
and pearls by my own countrymen, and pearls by the heathen, and pearls in the city, and pearls in the wilderness, and pearls in the sea, and pearls among false brethren, and weariness, and painfulness, and watchings often, and hunger, and thirst, and fastings often, and cold, and nakedness, besides those things that are without, those which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul was punished physically by the Jews. That would have been at the synagogue where they would have passed this punishment of 39 stripes. The measure was 40, but they always stayed one short in case the one who was inflicting the punishment should miscount and break the law by giving him an extra one. So the structure of the synagogue was a local community. And inside the synagogue, on the Jewish Sabbath, they would meet for worship. With men on one side and women on the other, sitting separately. And there were three parts of the worship. There was a time of prayers, and then there was readings from the law and the prophets, and then there would be a word of exhortation from someone who incidentally sat to deliver it. He didn't stand. And all of that was then followed by a recitation of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 9, and verse 11, the Shema. And then the exhortation, that was which was given before the end of the service and before the Shema, that would be delivered by any Jewish man at all. Eventually, as time progressed, that would be given by a rabbi. So the worship of the synagogues included an exhortation. And at that point, any Jewish man could give it. So what were the opportunities that the synagogue afforded? Because all of this helped Paul. As a Jewish man, when he came into a town, he would be expected to attend the local synagogue or synagogues. And to be fair, those synagogues were welcoming places for visitors. He would be recognized immediately by his bearing as a man of learning. He'd be entitled to speak. He would be asked if he had a word of exhortation for the people. The rulers of the synagogue sent for him, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. This is Paul's opportunity to stand and to introduce himself and to speak of his conversion and to preach Christ and him crucified in a very direct and forthright manner, as we shall see in the next study. And those synagogues were a mission field. They were a mixed congregation. One final reason why Paul would seek out the synagogue and get a preaching opportunity there was that along with the Jews, there were two other groups meeting and worshipping there. There were, of course, the proselytes. The proselytes, proselytes were Gentiles who had come to Judaism through a process of conversion. So the men had been circumcised. They'd all undergone ritual washings. They'd offered the prescribed sacrifices. They'd made solemn vows to live by the laws of Moses. They were now Jews. They hadn't got a Jewish background, and they hadn't got the Jewish baggage, but they were Jews. 
They were proselytes. And then there was another group called the God-fearers. These people were Gentiles. Very often, Gentiles who were tired of the low moral standards of the Roman world, tired of all the prostitution and tired of all the heathen sacrifices and the meaningless rituals. and They're attracted by the Jewish worship of the one God, the one true God. These people are ethical monotheists. They are seekers who are reading the Old Testament scriptures. People who are trying to learn from a Gentile perspective and background. Trying to learn about the God of Israel. And Paul is looking down at these people, these God-fearers, as a providentially prepared mission field. People who are searching for the true God people who are tired of this world, people who are reading the law and being convicted by the law, they are ready-made, receptive audiences for the good news that Christ died for sinners. In his book on Paul, F.F. Bruce writes, these Gentiles were assured by Paul that the hope of Israel had been fulfilled by Jesus and that through faith in him they could receive the saving grace of God on equal terms with the Jewish believers. It was as natural for God-fearing Gentiles to embrace the blessings of the gospel on these terms as it was for the Jews to decline them on these same terms. What did the leaders of the synagogues think of Paul's evangelism from among their communities? Bruce concludes that that because Paul had to visit the synagogue to establish contact with the God-fearers, the almost inevitable, inevitable result of this policy is a breach with the synagogues and the open hostility that we read about in this very chapter, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 50, where it says the Jews stirred up the devout and honourable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. So, what have we got in our historical look at the conditions of Paul's first missionary journey. His endeavours were aided by the Lord preparing the way and that the Roman Empire, even the heathens, were preparing the way for the preaching of the gospel. The Roman roads were safe and relatively easy to travel on. There was a universal language, a language in which the scriptures were written, the New Testament would be written, a language that could be understood from one end of the world, the known world, to the other, a language that could be used to preach the gospel no matter where Paul went, a language that he had grown up with and that he was a master of. And there was a ready-made mission field. And the synagogues, There were people who were seeking the Lord, waiting 
anticipating for that message, that good news to be brought to them. All of this was used by Paul as a means of preaching the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. God had not only opened the door, he not only chosen his messengers, but he had in his providence already prepared the way for them. And at exactly the right time, when the time was right, the good news would be carried to the very ends of the earth. And we are affirmed in our belief that our God is supremely in control of history. He is the sovereign God. His plan is always perfect. His way is perfect. We can trust him. The Samuel says, Second Samuel 22, and 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust him. It is the Lord himself too who opens doors and provides gospel opportunities. It is the Lord who calls workers in to reap his harvest. When it comes to our own desire to spread the word, we are taught to pray that the Lord himself would send forth laborers into the vineyard. And we're to pray that he himself will open doors of opportunity. Not only is salvation of the Lord, but the method of extending the gospel to sinners is of the Lord. And the timing for sinners to repent and come to Christ is all in the Lord's hand.